This is Common Sense Man, where I try to make sense of common things. Using the good, the true, and the beautiful, I talk about parenting, teaching, and the issues of the day. Today's topic is, there's no such thing as a non-religious state. For most of world history, states, nations, countries have had official religions. Now, a state religion doesn't mean a religion that all or most people in the country practice, not necessarily. But it means something that was the state's very reason for existing, the thing which justified the government's authority. The modern era is very unusual in that almost no states, at least on paper, have official religions. And most modern people on the right and left consider this to be a good thing. The thinking goes something like this. When it comes to religion, we can't all agree. We need to live together and get along, so it doesn't make sense to enshrine some particular religion that we don't all believe in as the official one for our state. It's better for the state to be neutral when it comes to religion. And on top of that, the thinking goes, think of all the wars that begin because two states have different official religions. A state that has no official religion will be more united, and a world without state religions will be more peaceful. But neither of these things have happened. Can anyone say with a straight face that we're more united now than in previous ages? And as for wars, well, look at the 20th century alone. We had World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, countless extremely bloody conflicts about seemingly non-religious issues. Indeed, during the Cold War, many people were expecting the entire world to be destroyed due to a conflict not over God or the purpose of life, but, in essence, over how to run an economy. So, in short, getting rid of official state religions, having a world of religiously neutral countries, doesn't seem to have solved these problems at all. In fact, they seem now to be far worse. So what happened? What happened is that we didn't get rid of state religions at all. We merely convinced ourselves that we did. There is no such thing as a non-religious state, nor could there ever be, even in principle. To understand how this can be, we have first to ask, what is religion? We covered this question in a bit more detail in my last talk, but in essence, a religion is a notion of the good, particularly of the highest good, What's most important? What's the purpose of existence? What should I never compromise on? This includes things that most people think of when they hear religion. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on. But any notion of the good, even if it doesn't include God, serves as a religion. A good maxim that I like to use is that you can tell a man's religion by what he takes seriously. Now, when a state has an official religion, that means basically how it justifies its existence, in particular, how it justifies its use of authority. It is the foundational idea at the bottom of the country. Why should I obey its laws? Why should I care about it? What is its mission? Why is it good that the country exists at all? The answer to those questions is the official state religion. Now, having a state religion does not necessarily mean that everyone who lives in the state is a member of that religion, but it does make a difference. Believing in the state religion or not believing in it means 
Do you agree with your state's founding idea, or do you disagree with it? That matters. No matter how your state is organized, there is no way that can't matter. Now, the very fact that people of different religions often live together in the same country is why most moderns think it a good thing that so many states are now seemingly religiously neutral. How should a religious state treat people that don't follow its official religion? This is a very difficult political problem, and it's understandable to try to avoid it altogether by just, as the phrase goes, keeping religion out of politics and making a neutral state. But a religiously neutral state is impossible. It cannot exist even in principle. To understand why, we have to review another important concept that goes hand-in-hand with religion, the hierarchy of goods. Now, a hierarchy of goods is all of your priorities, everything you think good in any sense of that word, in order of importance. As we discussed in more detail in my last talk, whenever you make a decision, small or big, your hierarchy of goods comes into play. Whether I choose to stay up all night or go to bed early depends on whether having fun or getting a good night's sleep is more important to me. It depends on where they lie on my hierarchy of goods. As another example, whether I let my coworker take the blame for something I screwed up or whether I admit my fault, that depends on where honesty, my job, my reputation, my coworker, where all those things lie on my hierarchy of goods. Which of these things is more important to me than the others? Now, any hierarchy of goods needs something at the top, a highest good. Indeed, I would go further. Your hierarchy of goods just is an expression of your highest good. Whatever you treat as the most important thing of all is the principle that puts all the lesser goods in order. Governments need to make decisions too, and when they do, they'll need a hierarchy of goods. And if you have a hierarchy of goods, whatever is at the top of it, that is your religion. I'll demonstrate how this plays out in a government with some practical examples, but before we get to them, we need a more precise idea of what kind of decisions governments make. They rule their people, sure, but what exactly does ruling mean? At the most basic level, All governments, whether they are democracies, monarchies, tribal villages, dictatorships, they solve conflicts between people by using their authority. A very literal example of this can be found in the Old Testament. Moses, while leading the Israelites in the desert, spends most of his day sitting in a chair, hearing arguments between Israelites and deciding who should get their way. His father-in-law, very helpfully, eventually convinces him to delegate this task to some other people. Now, a more complex government has lots of delegates, lots of judges, lots of officers. Maybe it has laws, precedents, ingenious systems for taking the guesswork out of things. But these only affect the how, not the what. At the end of the day, what the government is, is someone sitting in a chair and solving disputes while using authority. And to solve those conflicts, it employs a hierarchy of goods. Let's take something seemingly trivial, like New York's proposed large soda ban from a few years back. If you don't remember this story, it was more or less this. The health board was concerned that unhealthy sugary soda was 
making people unhealthy. So it wanted to make it such that businesses could only sell these drinks in 16-ounce containers. The businesses on the other side of the conflict wanted to be able to sell soda in any size they pleased. Now, when a government solves a conflict like this, it decides who is in the right based on its hierarchy of goods. How does the government balance health or profit or a business's authority or my authority as consumer or pleasure and so forth? Putting all these goods in order requires some fairly philosophical and, yes, religious thinking. But this is even clearer when the issue is something more important than soda. Let's take this as an example. Suppose my children are playing in my front yard and a man stands across the street holding up large, obscene images for them to see. If I take him to an authority, no matter how my government is organized, the system for solving this conflict will be based on its hierarchy of goods. It will compare the relative importance of my children's innocence, my fatherly authority, free expression, the man's authority, the purpose of public property, and so on. Indeed, the way the conflict is solved will partially depend on whether the state sees the obscene images as morally good or bad. But the main takeaway point is this. No matter how the state solves the conflict, there's no neutral solution to this or any conflict. One of the two of us will have to not get what he wants. That's why there can't be any neutrality. And to decide who that will be, the state will employ a necessarily not-neutral hierarchy of goods. Nor can it avoid the question by doing nothing, because to do nothing means deciding in favor of the man in the street. Unless, of course, the state continues to do nothing when I start roughing the guy up, in which case, it's deciding in favor of me. So far, I hope I've made two points clear. First, a religion is a notion of the highest good, what's most important. Second, no state can help having an official religion because it necessarily has to make decisions which involve deciding what goods are higher than others. I hope you've noticed that this talk very closely resembles our last talk. There's no such thing as a non-religious school. But I suspect many listeners will want to object at this point and say, hang on, there's a crucial difference between schools and states. Perhaps you're thinking something like this. Schools may fail to be non-religious because there isn't a coherent or consistent idea for neutrality in education. Schools try to be neutral, they don't really think very clearly about what neutrality means, and so they fail. But, you may say, modern states have thought a great deal about what it means for a government to be neutral, and they call that neutrality freedom or classical liberalism. Most states say everyone should be free to do whatever they want as long as they don't interfere with everyone else doing whatever they want. You may have heard the quote, your right to swing your arm around ends where the other guy's nose begins. Now, isn't that neutral ground? Can't a state simply make that idea its highest good and then truly have no religion? That does, after all, seem to be what the USA and many other Western nations strive to do. Now, at some point in the future, we're going to have an entire podcast just on classical liberalism. But for now, my answer is this. Freedom doesn't work as neutral ground because we can't all agree on what it really means. To put the same point in different words, freedom works way too well as neutral ground. 
Almost any political position and its opposite can be justified in terms of freedom. So you still need a notion of the highest good to solve conflicts. I can demonstrate this in two ways. First, pay very close attention to how both the mainstream right and left talk about freedom in politics. Both sides claim to be the true champions of freedom. Both sides also claim that the other guys don't really care about freedom, they're just pretending. If the right really cared about freedom, it wouldn't be trying so hard to restrict abortion. If the left really cared about freedom, it wouldn't be trying so hard to restrict the free market. And there's another commonality. Each side dismisses the other side's preferred causes as false freedoms, contrasted with their vision of real freedom. Freedom is important, but there's no such thing as the freedom not to be offended. We hear from the right. Freedom is important, but hate speech isn't free speech. We hear from the left. Now think about this for a second. If freedom really were the substantive neutral ground it's supposed to be, we shouldn't see this kind of conflict. We might expect to see a proudly anti-freedom party and a proudly pro-freedom party holding opposite viewpoints. Instead, we see two parties with opposite viewpoints both claiming to be pro-freedom. What's really going on here is that freedom isn't the true highest good of either the right or the left, though they are both sincerely trying to make it so. What's happening is that each side is pursuing a different notion of the highest good, a religion, that hides inside their idea of real freedom. The easiest way to demonstrate this is to go back to that conflict between me and the man in the street with the obscene sign. Let's say freedom is my state's sole political principle. How is our tribal chieftain going to solve this conflict? Freedom can't tell him how, because what he is deciding is whose freedom to restrict. Either he tells me, you are not free to attack this man, or he tells the man, you are not free to hold signs like that in public. Some notion of the good, not freedom, will have to be the real basis for this and any government decision. And even if our chief thinks he's made the decision based on freedom, it will only be because he's decided that one of the proposed freedoms isn't a real freedom. And hiding inside of what he thinks of as real freedom and fake freedom is his religion. What I hope I've established so far is this. Every state has a religion because it must have a notion of the highest good for it to make decisions. It's not possible for a state to lack a religion, not even in principle, even if the state attempts to base itself on something like freedom. So what happens when states try to do away with religion? That's what we're going to talk about now. What happens is they adopt a religion that can plausibly pretend not to be religion, not to be a contestable notion of the highest good. So they do have a religion, but it's invisible. It hides inside of whatever the state frames as neutral. This is a lot easier to see when you don't agree with the state religion. Nearly everyone who's not a communist can very easily see how communism fits this to a T. But it's much harder to see when you more or less agree with your state's religion. Classical liberalism, or democratic capitalism, 
rarely seem to proponents like particular ideologies that people might accept or reject. Generally, the attitude is it's just self-evidently unjust and even irrational for a country to be run any other way. When your state religion is invisible, there are two main consequences. First is that the state religion is very unlikely to be true, reasonable, or even fully coherent. Think about it. If you make decisions based on a hierarchy of goods, but have fooled yourself into thinking that you don't use a hierarchy of goods at all, how sensible is the order of your hierarchy likely to be? You can't think or reflect on why you've chosen something as your highest good, or why you value one thing more than another, when you aren't even aware of what you're doing, when you think you're operating in a neutral manner and don't have a hierarchy of goods. The second consequence we see in what happens to people who reject the state religion. To understand this, we have to first go back to the old days, when states had explicit official religions. Now, in the old days, if you rejected your country's official religion, you knew where you stood, and so did the state. If the state chose to treat you with tolerance, or to punish you, or to expel you, it might be acting justly or unjustly, but it at least knew that it was expelling all infidels, or locking up all heretics, or making everyone who's not a Christian a second-class citizen. And a just ruler could ask the question, if I govern this state in the name of Catholicism, what then does just treatment of non-Catholics look like? Part of why it's so tempting to get rid of your state religion is that this is a really difficult political question. Think about this. Suppose your state holds Catholicism to be the true religion. It holds God to be the highest good. That mere fact, regardless of what you do with your laws, is going to in some way exclude people that don't believe in God or think Catholicism is all lies, and especially those who are hostile to Catholicism. It feels a lot easier to just avoid the problem altogether and just drop religion. But as we've seen, it's not possible to drop religion. It's only possible to make your state religion invisible. And when you do, this is where the real irony comes in. The non-believers get no mercy. Why? Because a state with an invisible religion thinks there are no non-believers. It thinks it's on neutral ground. So therefore, it's never going to think clearly about what it is doing and why to the people who do in fact reject the state religion. You can see this play out in modern democratic societies in one of two ways. One way is a bit more mild, and we find it in the phrase, keep religion out of politics. Since, as we've seen, religion is just a notion of the highest good, no one actually keeps religion out of politics. What they do is they keep certain religions out of politics. The phrase, keep religion out of politics, actually means keep Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, all those things out of politics. But keep in politics all the religions that we don't traditionally call religions. In states that use this phrase, some religions that aren't the state religion are tolerated, but only as long as they don't get in the way of the state's true religion. 
The second way that non-believers of the state religion are dealt with when your state religion is invisible is to frame such people as irrational or dangerous. The preferred words in modern states vary. They depend on the exact nature of their rejection of the state religion. But listen for words like these. Extremist, bigot, intolerant, Nazi, fascist, racist, far left, far right, terrorist, cult. Cult is a particularly telling word. Nearly every modern person uses this word simply to mean a very bad, dangerous religion. That gives a very different meaning to the phrase, I tolerate religions, but I don't tolerate cults. Non-believers in the state religion that get called one of these words will be seen, perhaps rightly, as threats to the state. And when we think of religious freedom, tolerance, we never mean these people. And I should note here that I am not saying that modern states should be tolerant of everyone, or that they're bad, just like those bad medieval states that persecuted heretics because all they do is call their heretics Nazis. Since there cannot ever be a non-religious state, unlimited tolerance isn't possible. Furthermore, when you study history, some of the heretics those supposedly rigid medieval states persecuted, they held some really dangerous beliefs that really did threaten the state's survival. And that remains the case with some modern quote-unquote infidels. The point I'm really trying to make is this. Every state has a religion. There will, therefore, be people in the state who reject and even hate that religion. The state has to decide where to draw a line. Which of the non-believers are people that can be lived with, integrated into society, tolerated, and so on? And which of them represent real threats that we need to be dealing with? States that know they have a religion haven't always answered this question in a just manner. But they always know that they're making such a decision. They know that they're drawing a line. But when your state religion is invisible, you don't know that you are dividing the non-believers into the two categories of tolerable and threat, because you don't think you have a religion that can be rejected in the first place. So what tends to actually happen is that states treat any non-believer that interferes at all with something they think important as a threat, if not mentally ill. Think about this. If you hide what is actually your religion inside of your idea of neutrality, well, anyone who rejects neutrality, even if they seemingly affect society very little, they must be a bigot. They must be insane. They cannot simply be left there. They're dangerous. To review, I've tried to make the following points in this talk. First, religion is a notion of the highest good, which creates a hierarchy of goods. Second, religious neutrality is impossible for a state. Any state that thinks it doesn't have a religion really does. Third, even the modern political doctrine of freedom doesn't work as neutral ground. The state religion hides inside of whatever the state frames as true freedom as opposed to false freedom. Fourth, when a state thinks it doesn't have a religion, it tends to be merciless towards its non-believers. 
What I want to talk about now are some practical takeaways from this for parents and for anyone who lives in a state where they find they don't share the official religion. The first practical point is that you should know where you stand. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you don't live in a religiously neutral state. Nobody does. Either you buy the state religion or you don't, and that's going to affect how your state treats you. As an example, take Christians living in the early Roman Empire while their faith was still illegal. If nothing else, the Christians had very realistic expectations of their government. They knew that the state they lived in rejected what they thought to be the most important thing in the world. They knew that their children were growing up in a state that taught and upheld a rival religious ideal. So whatever your religion is, be aware that any state which claims to have no religion really is advancing some rival faith at every level of culture, education, and law. It's very hard to know exactly what a good parent should do in this situation, but every wise decision here starts with not fooling yourself by saying, I live in a religiously neutral state. The second takeaway is more personal. Most modern states have invisible state religions, religions that don't announce themselves as such. These invisible religions don't openly make the case for themselves as notions of the highest good. Rather, they hide in the background assumptions that the political arguments happen inside of. It's therefore worth asking yourself, to what extent have I adopted my state's religion without realizing it or meaning to? What are my state's background political assumptions? What are the things that the mainstream right and left don't question? Are those assumptions actually true? Have I really turned them over in my head and thought about them? And if they are untrue, have I been unconsciously living as though they are true? Think back to the phrase, keep religion out of politics. Again, that doesn't create non-religious politics. It simply forbids visible religions from participating in the public sphere so that invisible religions can dominate it. So, those invisible religions that are allowed inside of my state's politics, what are they? Can I identify them? Can I name them? To what extent do they already order my life, perhaps more than what I actually believe is the highest good? I really want to invite listeners to continue thinking about these personal and, yes, somewhat uncomfortable questions until our next talk, where we're going to get very personal with this theme. The third and final talk in this series is entitled There's No Such Thing as a Non-Religious Man. But don't worry, there's more. Thank you for listening to Common Sense Man.